Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night. And of course, you know this already, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Ooh, today we're going to talk about a topic that is, it's not depressing because we're going to talk about how to solve that problem. But the title of this episode is a little depressing, right? Why are so many people unhappy? To unpack that, for up that, I have John Clifton, who's the CEO of Gallup and the author of the new book, Blind Spot, The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. Now, John is the CEO of Gallup. His firm advises global leaders on how their organizations and countries can thrive using analytics-based insights. And so today we're going to talk about some stuff that I think is just good to have in your head to navigate the world, right? Just stuff that you should know. We're gonna talk, first of all, about John's journey at Gallup. You don't need to know that to navigate the world, but it is super interesting because he started working there in high school. I had no idea that this was a family business. And so he's been working his way up to CEO all these years. Now he's there putting his stamp, his imprint on the business. And so it's just a very interesting thing to learn about Gallup. We're going to be talking about what is driving unhappiness and getting some perspective on that from a global sort of set of data that they put together over at Gallup about why people are unhappy. And then we're going to be talking about kind of what can be done about this, right? How can one promote happiness? And I think it's worth thinking about just as people in the world, as business leaders, as entrepreneurs, as founders, as all the different things that all of us do who listen to the show, how can we contribute to making the world a little more happy? All right, and now for the small ask, this one's for the universe. Go do something nice for somebody. Just make somebody happy, anybody. I mean, it could be the barista who you give a compliment to, could be family or friends, but just do something to put a little more happiness out into the ether. That's all I'm asking. Not a lot to ask. All right, and now onto the interview. As you know, I like to start every interview with the same question, and the question is this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? You know, I, throughout my entire life, I had a passion for numbers and countries. Uh, when I applied at the University of Michigan, I applied as a math major, but I eventually switched to do poli-sci and history, but which had a focus on kind of international relations. Um, and it was through that I was passionate about what was happening internationally. I studied abroad twice and also focused on it with... Uh, international law when I was in law school. And I think the big decision was, how could I be part of something that allowed me to do both? And that's when I joined Gallup 
And Gallup had just started this initiative known as the Gallup World Poll, where we were basically quantifying uh, what people were thinking and feeling in every single country in the world and putting a number to it so that we could easily communicate it to world leaders. So I think that decision was big for me. I think it was a big decision for us as an organization. Uh, and it really changed who we were. You know, it's funny. I like numbers in countries too. And, uh, and, but I know in a less productive and less helping save the world way, I'm just, I count how many countries I've been to. And so, and so it's a hundred, right? It's going to be 110 in about two weeks if I get my druthers. Um, but yeah, it's 106 right now. So anyway, your, your, your version is way, way better for the universe than mine. <laughs> um, so I, I want to start first of all, cause you mentioned Gallup and as I was reading about you, I saw that you've been at Gallup basically since since you got out of law school, but then you were telling me as we were chatting before the interview, you actually have been working there your entire life. So tell us a little about your history with Gallup because it's very, it's very cool and it's something I didn't know about. Sure. So Gallup started in 1934. Um, George Gallup, of course, correctly, correctly predicted the election with FDR and Al Flandin. Um, and so George Gallup was doing his company and there was another company, Don Clifton and Jim Clifton started in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, which was focused on human behavior at the individual and at the organizational le level. Those two organizations became one in 1988. Um, and so I started at Gallup in our maintenance department and also in our child development center. Mm. Uh, after high school, I moved to do text analytics, a project that I did with my grandfather where we looked at uh, positive and negative text sentiment within newspapers across the country. Uh, after that, I interned in the legal department. And after that, I joined uh, what's called our Gallup World Poll team um, and had been working with them for a number of years. It's so cool because, I mean, we all know Gallup. It's a brand that everybody knows and loves. And to know that there's continuity in this day where like everybody sells to a private equity firm and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's just they hollow it out and it's like then there'll be like a Gallup uh, channel and the Gallup, you know, store and the Gallup this, and they everything gets like diluted to know that there is a brand that's integrity that has the same sort of DNA through it is something that I find rather comforting, obviously really important because people need to trust what you're telling them. Now, your new book is called Blind Spot, The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders miss it. And this is something that, you know, many of us, it's like, it's kind of, you know, it, it, I don't want to say obvious, but we can feel it. We can feel the unhappiness in the air. It's at highs, record highs. There's anger, sadness, pain, worry, stress. And, you know, we had the pandemic, of course, but the pandemic, you know, that was just like a little extra on top of, you know, it's like, let's take a bad situation and make it worse. And in fact, I know that you're, in your research, unhappiness has been steadily climbing for a decade, and it's been a real blind spot for a lot of leaders around the world. So let's just start with that. What is driving this unhappiness? Well, let me talk a little bit about why it's a blind spot, too, mm -hmm. because when we first came out with this global report and said, we have a concerning trend, we see that there's this global rise of anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry. And the time that we launched this report was in 2020. And when we launched it, a lot of people heard it and they said, well, gee, Gallup, aren't you pointing out the obvious? There's a global pandemic, uh, you know, the kind of global pandemic that only comes around once every hundred years. Of course, all of us are miserable. Mm. Um, but the reality is, is that this increase was taking place before the pandemic. So while the pandemic did, in fact, cause a great deal of pain to people all over the world, 
this rise in misery has been taking place for a decade. Now, to your point, why is this taking place? Um, the reason is, is because of this concept known as well-being inequality. And we ask a question every single year and we say to people, rate your life on a scale of zero to 10, where 10 is the best imaginable life and zero is the worst imaginable life. Where do you stand today? 15 years ago, we found that roughly uh, 3% of people said, I have the best imaginable life. Um, and about one and a half percent said, no, I have the worst imaginable life. Fast forward 10 years, the number who said it's the best life imaginable has more than doubled to about seven and a half percent. The people who say they have the worst life imaginable, that it couldn't get worse, has quadrupled. And it's also at about seven and a half. So the people who are uh, living this sort of best imaginable life, they are pulling away from those that have the worst imaginable life. And we can see when asking those people who, are, who say their life is the worst, their stress, their sadness, their anger, their physical pain and their worry is increasing dramatically. It's interesting. I, I, I'm not too surprised that you see this polarization because we just see it everywhere, right? It's, it's in our society. We're, it feels like we're living in this have or have not world. And in fact, that's kind of everywhere. Uh, what What I do find interesting is I remember during the pandemic, you'd see these articles people wrote that would say, well, you know, things may look bad right now and you read the newspaper and you feel terrible. But in fact, if we look over the scope of human history, it's probably never been a better time to be alive in terms of sheer numbers of people, you know, having basic needs covered and health and all this other stuff. So how do you think about that disconnect between statistically what looks like it should be, you know, a better world versus the way that people are feeling inside? I think the question is, where are those statistics coming from? Uh -huh. Because where has the world gotten so much better? And yes, the world has gotten better over the past hundred years. Absolutely. People now have smartphones in their pockets. Um, but let's be very clear, because for many, the world is not getting better. It's getting worse, especially on one massive issue, hunger. So if you look, for example, at uh, what the FAO puts out, of course, Food and Agriculture Organization out of Rome, part of the UN, um, for four decades, the world was winning the war against hunger. So that narrative is 100% true that the world's getting better. But after 2014, that number went the wrong direction and people are far more hungry than they are today than they were in 2014. So if you look at the aggregate of moderate and food insecurity, in 2014, 20% of people suffered from that. It's now at over 30% and it was increasing before the pandemic. So again, yes, the world is getting better, but not for a certain set of individuals who are really struggling with the very basics to eat. Um, and this is causing a lot of stress, sadness, and pain, and it's really understandable why. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply.
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. You know, it's incredible because you read these stats about how mobile phone penetration everywhere is through the roof. And like, so the notion that you have people who have a cell phone, but yet can't find enough to eat, it it explains a lot about the issues that we have throughout the world today. Now, whether you're in business or politics, obviously leaders look at a bunch of different sort of metrics to think about progress and also to think about the future. And I kind of think about Bhutan uh, when I think about that, because uh, Bhutan is famous for having, instead of their GDP, it's like a gross national happiness index. And I actually went to Bhutan a long time ago. And I remember thinking it was kind of interesting. They don't have cigarettes in Bhutan. So like, I got to imagine, you know, that's just like, it's a really interesting way of thinking about how do we create better outcomes for people. When you think about happiness, you know, outside of Bhutan, because they've already kind of got their act together, but where does happiness fit into the, to the indicators of progress uh, across the, across the globe? Well, if you don't mind, let's stick on Bhutan. Yeah, let's do it. Because we asked Bhutanese, for many years, rate your life on a scale of zero to 10. And their responses, surprisingly, and I think considering that the fourth Dragon King many years ago said that they're going to make gross national happiness uh, the leading indicator for progress, well, then how are they doing? We found that, you know, they're not among the top in the world. In fact, if they are anything, they're middle of the pack. They align much closer to a place like India than they do, you know, some of the wealthiest countries in the world. If they lead in anything, it's that the people in that country feel more well-rested than anyone else in the world. So there is something, again, that they're excelling in. Now, you might ask, well, where are they today? We have not been back to Bhutan in order to do the face-to-face interviewing since 2017. Why? Because the government has asked if they could intervene and select the houses where we conduct the surveys. Now, as you had mentioned earlier, Gallup has a commitment to quality. And although we would very much like to conduct surveys there, we pay for it ourselves. The barrier right now is just we need to be able to do the type of selection and methodological procedures that we know that we do very well. Um, and so we've been at an impasse until since 2017. So we haven't been able to collect data there for a very long time. Oh, no. So my knowledge of Bhutan, I love it. <laughs> you know, you come on my show and you give me some facts that overcome my very facile narrative. And I, I appreciate you for doing that because that's exactly what you should do. But back to the to the bigger question about this, you know, this indicator of happiness, like how does it fit into the picture? Do, you, do leaders sit around? I mean, do they pick up your poll and read it and, and do they learn something from it? Like, what do you want them to learn? Well, I, I believe right now that leaders still closely follow economic indicators. If you gave a pop quiz 
to any members of the G7 or the G20 and you said, um, you know, what does unemployment look like in your country? What does GDP per capita look like? I think they'd all ace the test. But if you asked them how much sadness do people have in your country, I don't think they'd know. And I think primarily it's because in so many countries, they're not tracking it. And even if they are tracking it, they're not doing it in a way where they can do global comparisons. So I hope that many are paying more, uh, that they're paying closer attention to what Gallup is uh, you know, putting out because we are trying to track this on a global basis when it is uh, comparable. Now, one of the weaknesses is just we're not doing it frequent enough. Ideally, we'd be doing this on a quarterly or a monthly basis, but ultimately the barrier is funding uh, because getting capturing good statistics at a country level can become very, very expensive. So what are the drivers? Like if we if we dig down to it and we look at yeah. a country or a place that is successful, and I'd love to hear those are, what are what's going on in those places that is different from the places where the indicators are really bad? Well, let's isolate the people because there are yeah. people who say my life is an eight, nine, or a 10. And there are people who say I have the worst life imaginable, a zero, a one, or a two. And when you isolate those groups, they all seem to have five things in common, either that they do have or that they don't have. And it's this list. Number one, what we call social well-being. Whether or not you have close family and friends that you can rely on matters to a great life. The second one is what we call work well-being. Whether or not you're miserable at work uh, can actually cause you so much emotional pain that you are that you look more like the unemployed than you do with other people, with other jobs. The next one is community well-being. It's not just about whether or not communities have the basics. It's whether or not they have other people in the community that they trust and people in the community that will volunteer and help people like strangers in their community. The next piece is physical well-being. If you go to the WHO, they say physical well-being is really two things, um, whether or not you move. And the other one is whether or not you're eating. But as you and I had talked about earlier, there are a lot more people in the world today than there was in 2014 that have the ability to eat. So their financial well-being is hurting. And the last one is financial well-being. Money matters. Um, now, money does not necessarily buy you a great life, but it's hard to be happy without it. Um, so those are kind of the fundamental drivers about what is it that makes people view their lives well and also what causes them misery. Now, I'll say one last thing, which is when you have none of these things and you feel like you don't have the opportunity to advance or get by in life and you think the odds are stacked against you, then it really causes misery and pain. For example, we have been asking people all over the world, do you think that corruption is widespread in your government? Do you think that corruption is widespread in the businesses in your country? We find that over two thirds of the world says yes to those questions and have done so for the past 15 years straight. So when you feel like personally, everything in life is going the wrong way, and then you feel like the odds are stacked against you, the cocktail isn't great. Uh, for leaders or for any people that are living in that particular country. And are those, you mentioned those five sort of areas, you know, from the physical all the way through to community and, and connectivity. And it reminds me of, I'm sure you've read this as well, and many of listeners have, like the Grant study, which was done at Harvard, that traced people through the their lives and asked them if they were happy or not. And they found that the the most significant driver of human happiness was connection, right? I'm curious, as you think about those five drivers and as you studied them, are there some that are bigger than others in terms of their overall impact or is it generally spread amongst them? Like, how does that kind of work? Absolutely. Take this one, for example. We actually find that one of the biggest drivers is work. 
Now, again, when we say that these five, some of my colleagues don't like when I say this, mm. that you can either say that when we found that these are the five drivers, that it's an incredible finding and that all leaders should just sort of align everything they do to those five things. Or you can say, gee, you pointed out the obvious. What else is there in life other than those five things? But the point is that if it's so obvious, why aren't leaders necessarily focusing on them? So one of them I mentioned was work well-being. And the reason just fundamentally that work is so impactful to somebody's overall life is think about how many hours we spend working. There's one study out of Australia that estimates that people who choose to work full time throughout their life, they spend 115,000 hours working, which is the equivalent of 13 years of a human being's life, meaning the only thing we do more of is sleep. So whatever is happening at work hugely determines what happens in your life. And it's not just your life. It's also the lives of your family and friends. Why? We've done surveys from Germany to the United States. And we said to them, did the stress of work cause you to behave badly with friends and family? And far, far more than a majority said, absolutely. So this idea of work-life balance, one of the biggest problems with it is it assumes that human beings can compartmentalize something bad in life and that it does not leak into the other things that take place in life. And it's to falsely understand human beings. Because if you are berated at work, disrespected at work, the idea that you somehow forget about it when you go home at night just rarely happens. Um, and it's why that people need to focus on just creating better workplaces. FOMO. FOMO. This is so important. And I want to I want to cite a couple stats that I read about when I was doing research for today, which is that you have found a Gallup that only 20% of people are thriving at work, while 62% are indifferent and 18% are miserable. And by the way, indifferent, I mean, I, indifferent isn't like neutral because I've been indifferent at work. It makes you feel like a little dead inside. So that's not, indifferent is not acceptable, right? It's just not miserable. But I think what you're saying, John, and for everybody's listening is don't underestimate how much your work well-being drives your overall happiness because if you are unhappy or indifferent at work, it's going to seep into the rest of your life. And so for everybody here who's listening, all of us homo sapiens who, you know, we know how connected our productivity and our work life is into our overall mental health and mental fitness. Like this is a really important finding that, you know, if you remember anything from today, I would encourage you to well, remember all of it. But this is one of the things that I'm going to take away from the conversation. What's crazy, though, is like, you know, John, I'm sure you, I mean, you, you know, stats better than like a lot of people out there, certainly better than me. And we we keep seeing that, you know, there's like a shortage of workers everywhere. And you'd think that because of that, employers would have to meet workers where they are and create a better experience for them. And somehow like the market would solve this problem, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. I'm curious how you think about like the labor market and how this relates to all of the findings of the, of, of your work. So we started asking uh, employees here in the United States about their intention to leave the place where they work. And we found that it's about 40% say that they are either passively or actively looking for a new job. Now, if I asked you, when did that study take place? You might say, well, 40% seems like a lot. That must have taken place during the Great Resignation. The answer is it took place in 2019. Mm. And we replicated that study and found that also 40%, again, no change from time over time, that people were looking passively or actively. And the people who were doing that either time uh, all had one thing in common. 
they were miserable at work. 75% of people that are miserable at work are either actively or passively looking for uh, a new job. Now, why is it that they're taking action on it now? The reason is, is because those people will even leave jobs if there's almost no increase in pay. When there's a slight increase in pay, they will absolutely lose it, change jobs at any chance that they can get. So the people who are moving who didn't really like what they were doing in the first place. That being said, I don't want to pretend that your work well-being sort of dictates all of your decision making mm. because it doesn't. Money actually does, not surprisingly, play a factor. And so we found that a 20% increase on average will cause many people to look at a new job, even if they are fully emotionally attached to the job that they have. Now, again, that's the law of averages. It doesn't mean that if somebody totally loves everything that it is that they're doing, that if a doubling of their pay will cause them to leave. You can't say that. But on average, it is 20% that will cause them um, to look at a new, a new job. So right now, when you have this much cash that's going around in the economy, at least over the past uh, 18 months, you can see why even those that are engaged uh, are starting to look at new jobs as well. Yeah, I, I read this article just the other day that this is, you know, right now is probably the best time to switch jobs in a while. And and there is a lot of money sloshing around. There is a war for talent and the market's just very unsettled. So it's worth knowing that, I think, especially if you're thinking about retaining your team, it's like, what is it going to be that's going to take them away Maybe they like the job and, you know, the culture is great. But at some point, people also, they're like, well, my rent went up. The rent's too darn high, as we say in New York City, and you got to pay it. Now, we had I had mentioned earlier, I asked you this question. We didn't get to it yet, but I want to return, which is, what are the countries? So let, let's imagine I pulled out my passport. I'm getting on a plane. I want to go see the countries that are doing this really well. And then I want to go to the places where, unfortunately, things, let's say they have a little room for improvement. What did you find in the poll? What are the, what are the tops? And then let's go to the laggards. Okay, so the happiest countries in the world, the way to determine them depends on how you define happiness. And when you're measuring a life well lived, these concepts are a little complicated. And they're a lot like when the world was approaching measuring GDP in 1937, I think when Simon Kuznets approached Congress and said, hey, let's try to quantify the health of the economy, create an indicator for it. Even almost 100 years later, we're still grappling with exactly how to quantify that uh, in countries all over the world. So as I say that, just be patient as we're only 15 years into this, trying to do this for the entire world. Um, so here it is. When we think of measuring a great life, there are two concepts. One, how you see your life. And number two, how you live your life. The see your life is a reflection. If I say just rate your life on a scale of zero to 10, you look at things holistically um, and then you rate it. If you determine that is what happiness is, then the number one country in the world is one of the Nordic countries. It's either Denmark, it's Switzerland. Those are the countries that rate their lives the best. And the countries that rate their lives the worst, the people within them, is Haiti, the Palestinian territories, um, et cetera. So, People who are living in the Nordic countries know they have it quite well. Mm. And people who are living in places like Haiti or the Palestinian territories know they don't have it very well. But here's the other way to measure it. So that's how you see life. The other way is how you experience life. How much do you laugh? How much stress do you have? How much sadness? But if you isolate just how much do you laugh and how much enjoyment do you experience, how much respect do you feel, the single region of the world is Latin America. Nobody knows how to have fun more than Latin Americans. 
And if there's anything from this study that the world can learn from is what is it culturally about that particular region that the rest of the world can learn from? Because there's huge amounts of well-being that the world can gain just in understanding that. Yeah. And you, it, it's probably from your poll, but I, I had this, uh, I used to have this on my desk at the office. A It was plotted GDP per capita versus happiness. And it showed all the regions of the world. And the number one, at least back when I posted this, was Puerto Rico. And Latin America, uh, you know, which is, you know, obviously part of the United States, but it was it was plotted. They have their own Olympic team, so I guess they get their own they get their own plot on the on the chart. But um, it was quite interesting to see Latin America leading the way. And then you have, interestingly, like former Soviet republics way down on the list, not to pick on anybody. And, it, and I think part of it's because it's too darn cold there. But it is it is true that the, I like the way you've broken that up because I was just actually in the in, in Denmark over the summer. And I thought to myself, like, wow, like this place is insane. Like, I feel like better living just being here it's such a beautiful civilized just kind of perfect kind of place but it's definitely you know latin america may not have all the fancy things that they have in scandinavia but the the lifestyle and the human connection and the extended families and the joy and the music it is it is it stands out as something that we can all learn from so i i think it's really valuable to think about about things in those two ways well i think in the book, I mentioned that there were some quotes from people that were living in Finland uh, because somebody did some street interviews and they said, Finland's ranked number one in the world in happiness. How do you feel about that? And there were a lot of people on the street that they said, uh, well, I don't feel happy. Uh, and I think one of the ministers actually was famously quoted and said, well, if we're the happiest country in the world, I feel very sorry for the rest of the countries in the world. <laughs> um, and I think they said that because one of the challenges is we are misusing the word happiness. Because when you ask people to rate their lives on a scale of zero to 10, you're probably not measuring happiness. What you're measuring is contentment. And so to say that the Danes or Finns are the happiest in the world is probably not entirely accurate, but they are the most content in the world. Now, if you came out with the World Contentment Report, probably no one would read it because it's not a very attractive title for a report. But if it says happiness, you're a lot more interested to read it. And again, you know, for those that go in and read all the methodological things, they see that this is just a self-reflection of one's life. They see that there are countries that make sense at the top, countries that make sense at the bottom. And to understand what the drivers are um, is something that's very useful for policymakers. I'm curious, you know, this has been, this poll is what, a hundred years old. So in the beginning, there were no cell phones. People couldn't go on YouTube and see, you know, keep up with the Kardashians. And as we talk about that comparison of defining happy in term, happiness in terms of what other people are doing. I mean, I hate to say it, but it feels a little FOMO, right? I mean, if you are living in a place where you don't feel like you're getting the things you need and then you're looking at people in another country, you know, in Finland or whatever, who seem to be living very, very well, there is the comparison, that reference anxiety that feeds into this. So I'm curious, do you think technology and the ability to compare ourselves with others has shaped how people answer these questions? We don't know. But I can tell you what we do know, and then we can attempt to draw conclusions from that. So what we know is that from studies back in the 60s where people were trying to do cross comparisons, for example, um, the Easterland paradox comes to mind. And at the time, and some of these still are true, is that within countries, rich people rate their lives higher than poor people. 
And nations, this is not what he found in the 60s, but it is true today. Uh, rich countries have people who rate their lives higher than people in poor countries. Now, the challenge is, is are we finding that because there was this sort of proliferation of technology that took place when Gallup started doing this in 2005? But here's the problem, because when we isolate the people who are online compared to the people who are not, we see that there's a meaningful increase in some of these items on misery to the people who are not online, um, which would suggest that they're uh, lives are getting worse, not because they're compar comparing it to people globally, but because in absolute terms, their lives are getting worse. And when you see indicators like hunger, when you see indicators like job quality that are not necessarily headed in the right direction in some countries or an ongoing frustration with governments or other leaders, that you do see uh, a massive challenge when it comes to uh, the absolute sort of relationship to how they see about their, and feel about their lives. All right, so John, we put this report in the inboxes of all the world leaders, and if, next time you guys do this, everything is way, way, way better. What did they do differently? I think there are two things. Number one, there are more initiatives that focus on the subjective aspect of life, the emotional piece of how people live and make decisions around their lives. For example, one of the best initiatives in the United States in just the past 12 months was the National Suicide Hotline on 988. One of the biggest problems with the previous suicide hotlines is the call volume was so bad that one out of six people who made phone calls to that particular hotline went unanswered. I mean, it's, 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 it's cruel that somebody's reaching out to those lines hoping to get somebody to answer and they don't have the opportunity. Uh, two other great examples are Japan and the UK. Both of them have opened or unofficially opened ministries of loneliness. Because, you know, it's no longer an exaggeration to say that loneliness kills. In fact, one fantastic meta-analysis actually shows that loneliness can increase your chances of death by 50%. You don't have the support system when things get tough, but you also don't have somebody that's just looking out for you in life. And so these are some public sector interventions that I think can take place to help make the world a lot better. In addition to the fact that we need more governments that are just tracking this so that if leaders get a pop quiz about the state of their economy, the state of their stock market, uh, the state of unemployment, if they ever get it on stress, sadness, physical pain, worry, that they also have an answer to say, look, we're in a worse place than we were a few years ago. We also have the private sector. And I think if the private sector were to do something that would tremendously help people's lives, and for the Freedmanites out there that only care about shareholder capitalism, um, I think the CHROs should come together and say, look, instead of saying that let's become uh, stakeholder capitalists, let's figure out how to double the amount of people that are thriving at work. Because when people are thriving at work, uh, it's not only good for their own well-being and their family's well-being, it's also good for the bottom line. So this is something that no matter what that your business philosophy is, stakeholder capitalism, shareholder capitalism, state capitalism, which seems a little oxymoronic to me, customer capitalism, purpose capitalism, no matter what it is, creating thriving workplaces drives all of them. So it's something that executives everywhere can rally behind. You know, I love that you brought up Milton Friedman because the reference there was to this very influential article that Milton Friedman wrote about the fact that basically the raison d'etre of a company is to make sure that their shareholders have the highest return and everything else is, you know, not important. And I remember reading that and being convinced that was the case. And then life taught me 
that maybe that is not the right answer. So it's a, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a, it's a fine point that we should, you know, great way to, to end this conversation. Now, if you want to learn more about the work that went into this report and about the conclusions, you can read Blind Spot, which is uh, the new book that John has out, Blind Spot, The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. If you want to find out more about Gallup, you can check out gallup.com. You can find John on Twitter at John Clifton DC, and you can find him on LinkedIn. John Clifton, CEO of Gallup, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.